because she's going to have to navigate it too as she gets older. You know, I don't want to just tell her she's Lebanese Palestinian and not equip her with the full story because she's going to have to defend that identity because it's not always, you know, um, a happy smile on the receiving end of whatever interaction you're having out there in the world, you know? Welcome to The Big Blend, the podcast about merging cultures and transmission. For those of you who are listening for the first time, you can discover the whole story behind The Big Blend by listening to the first episode, The Prologue. Today's guest is Marwan Farraj, a Palestinian Lebanese activist and a super dad. Let me tell you a little bit about Marwan. His dad is Palestinian-Jordanian and his mom is Lebanese. He spent the first years of his life in Saudi Arabia. When he was five, his family emigrated to Canada. He went to school there for a few years. And then at 13, they moved to Lebanon. So in his childhood, he did Saudi Arabia, Canada, then Lebanon. In Lebanon, he finished up school, did his university studies and worked there for a few years. Then his work took him to different places, Saudi Arabia again, the UK, Dubai, And now he's living in Switzerland. He has two kids, a daughter who is six and a son who is four. I wanted to interview him because he comes from a multicultural family, has led a multicultural life and built a multicultural family himself. Plus, I wanted to dig into the subject of legacy when it comes to activism because Marwan is committed to several causes and is very vocal and active about them. Hi, Marwan. Hi, Marielle. Welcome to The Big Blend. Marwan, let me start with a very simple question. Where do you come from? Um, I'd say I'm Palestinian Lebanese. That's uh, what I would identify if someone was to ask. Have you answered this your whole life? No, not really. I mean, it's, um, it's a bit of a long story, which I'll try and summarize as much as possible. But when I grew up in Canada, so I was born in Saudi, but moved to Canada. But when I grew up in Canada, um, there was... I don't know, I guess the strategy that my parents developed, which was basically, let's not tell him where he's from so that he can integrate better, which really confused me, I think, at the time growing up in Canada, because I obviously wasn't like uh, most other white Canadians um, in the neighborhood I was living in. And so I didn't really know what I was. Um, and then, boom, I moved to Lebanon in 93. And they were like, surprise, you're Arab. <laughs> so it was uh, so it was a it was a, it was a bit of a shock at times so I even I even went through a long phase there but it was nice because when I moved when I was in Canada I always didn't really fit in but when I moved to Lebanon my parents put me in a private school at, at ACS and it was a bunch of other kids that were just like me that kind of grew up outside and we Uh, were Arab or Lebanese or as in the case with me I'm, I'm actually Palestinian Lebanese and That was only something I really only discovered living in Lebanon longer and longer and what that cause meant. Uh, so yeah, sorry, long way to say the way of answering that question has changed over the years, I guess. And now I say I'm Palestinian Lebanese. Why do you think your parents hid that from you? I don't know. I guess, I guess it's different. Uh, well, I'm assuming here, right? So I don't know the answer, but I'm assuming that my father being Palestinian in the 70s and 80s wasn't necessarily the, you know, nice picture to have. And I think he grew up with that to a certain extent. And my mother also probably was just trying to relieve the stress of us integrating. So I, I mean, it's obviously a 
good intent. The, there might have been some confusion as a result, but I think they just thought it would be better for me, you know. Um, and you know, racism exists, uh, you know, even in Canada. So, and I saw it firsthand. So it's, yeah. If I had to guess, what languages did you speak at home? So uh, we spoke Arabic at home, and then when we moved to Canada, it just became English. My parents still speak to me in Arabic, and we answer back in English. I think that's pretty much the default communication method. Until today? Until, well, it depends. If I have to have like a long discussion about something and I just don't have the vocabulary at reach, it's obviously easier for me in, in English. But I mean, if it's like we're having dinner and, you know, I'm saying the food tastes great and what have you, then yeah, it's Arabic. And, you know, we love each other in Arabic as well. You know what I mean? Like when you're in dear terms of endearment and all that. <laughs> But like if I'm talking to her about what my work is like, yeah, I know I'd stick to English for sure. Okay. So you talked about being in Canada and then moving to Lebanon. Where is Palestine in all of this? When did you realize that you were Palestinian and how did Palestine get into your everyday life? Right. So it's funny because my wife always gets annoyed whenever I say I'm Palestinian Lebanese because because the Palestine part, really, to be honest, is something that I discovered later in my life in terms of, first of all, connection to the land. So my dad was always kind of secretive about it in line with the same strategy before. And so I really had to pry him open to kind of understand where I was from and, and what our story was. And, and then it, actually my great-grandfather uh, had passed away in, uh, in 1947. In 1947, it was the beginning of the first war of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It was when the UN proposed to divide Palestine into two independent states, one Palestinian Arab and one Jewish, so Israel. And, you know, my father had lived basically without his dad. And, and it was quite a pretty intense story and stuff. So um, and then also there was a lot of activism in university. And I remember there was one guy once that was he found out that I was Palestinian, but I wasn't really saying I was. And he said that there was plenty of Lebanese and that we needed more people fighting for the Palestinian cause. And something about that rang true. And it's not to say I'm not Lebanese. I'm, my mother is Lebanese, but um, there are a lot of Lebanese ambassadors around the world. We do that great, but there's not very much Palestinian ones. And I feel like every time I meet someone here in the Western world and I say that I'm Palestinian, I always get like a bit of a surprise element from them, Palestinian Lebanese, because uh, I don't know, I guess they, what they thought they would expect is some guy with a rock. <laughs> you know, I don't know what, 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 what the media has built in their heads. So it's become something more and more, I feel like a responsibility uh, to, to, to say it, you know, whereas in the past I didn't, because I didn't really know much about it. And then, like I said, the activism and aspect of it. What's crazy is that it became such an important part of who you are, or at least your story that you, st you say Palestinian Lebanese and not Lebanese Palestinian. It's really become almost your first culture. It, it is. And it's not, I mean, I say Palestinian Lebanese because of the thing I was mentioning earlier, where, you know, it's to make a point almost. I still have not been to Palestine. It's on the bucket list. I definitely want to make it there. But, you know, I lived in Lebanon. I worked in Lebanon. I met Rania, my wife, in Lebanon, you know, so it is still a part of me. But, you know, as you know very well, and unfortunately is the case for Luna, is that she will never get the passport. And I won't get the passport either, even though I was born there and my mother is Lebanese. And there is a bit of bitterness there as well, I have to say, from my end. 
also when I was there, I, you know, I worked there, so I had to go get a work permit and wait in line. And, and it was, you know, I still remember, I mean, okay, it sounds like waiting in line is such a bad thing, but, <laughs> but for anyone who's dealt with any kind of Lebanese administration where you need to like have like six copies of everything, you know, the right stamps and what have you, and you're waiting in line and you're not sure if you're waiting in the right line, but point is, is I had to do all that just to work in a country that I thought was where I was from. So I think it created a bit of bitterness and, and hence the Palestinian Lebanese. But I mean, culturally, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously more Lebanese than I am Palestinian. And which passports do you have? I have the Jordanian one because my father eventually immigrated to Jordan and nationalized It's very, it's very strange. I have a document that says I'm Jordanian, but it means nothing. I mean, all my respect and thank you, Jordan, for taking in my father <laughs> and giving him a country. I'm just saying my relationship with the nationality is virtually non-existent because there was no real link to that land and that story and that culture even, you know. So you, the question was, how many passports I have? A Jordanian one, I have a, I have a Canadian one from when we immigrated there. So there's really no link between the administrative papers that you hold or that you have the citizenship officially and what you really feel. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. I mean, the fact that I even say I'm Palestinian Lebanese and I haven't even been to Palestine is exactly to that point. And the same thing with Lebanon. Every time at the passport control, I, I give them the Canadian passport and they're always like, you're Lebanese, no? And I say, no, because, and I tell them the same story. I say, because, you know, you're a great country. Even though I was born here, even though my mother is Lebanese, won't give me the passport. And then they always make the same joke. It's the same joke every time I go through the airport. And he, sa he says, well, what do you want with it anyway? And I'm just like, oh, you know, I don't know. It's just like, it's, a, it's identity, you know? I, I mean, it doesn't need to be, but it just kind of visualizes it. And it means something. It does. I wouldn't be bitter if it didn't mean nothing. You know, what we're talking about, this like you can have an at, like an identity without having a paper. It's crazy talk to people. That's, I mean, you know what I mean? If you if you meet someone at a bar and you're just like, where are you from? Well, I'm from here, but, you know, <laughs> because I feel it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's true, though. It's true, but that's not the way the world works. And that's why, yeah, at the end of the day, I would I would love to have a Palestinian passport. I'd love to have a Lebanese one and just kind of officially secure my identity in it. I know it sounds really shallow because it's just a piece of paper, but there is something, uh, there is something there. Definitely. I may sound very naive, no? but is there a Palestinian passport still? It's like a passport to kind of document. Let's Google that. Right. There is a Palestinian authority passport. It was issued since April 1995. Yeah. Okay. Would you have wanted to know the whole story of your culture earlier in your life? Would you have done it differently? Would you give an advice to your parents? Yeah, definitely. If I could give them some advice, it would be uh, say the truth. I had to go through a lot. You know, there was a whole experience of quote unquote finding myself in that. And it was a bit difficult to navigate, but I came out alive, so I'm fine. But um, I think had I known, it would have definitely made a difference in my confidence when I was a kid just to know where I fit in, right? Like I knew we weren't the same, but we didn't really get an explanation. I mean, when I compare it to like how it is with like our kids now, my kids, we're always talking to them about it. We're always telling them about 
who they are and what makes them them and uh, just making sure that they understand that. And actually, just the other day, my daughter came back from school. She was saying that they were reading a book in school and there was Arabic in the book. And she was kind of like just pointing at it. And she's like, that's my language. That's my language. And I told her, how'd that make you feel? And she's like, I was so proud. So I, I think when I look at how she reacts to her culture being displayed because of what we do and what we talk about, it looks like it would have been a better thing to do. But yeah, it's hard to give feedback to parents. Of course. <laughs> Today, where would you say that you feel the most at home? You moved around a lot. Is there one place where you're like, whew, okay, I feel home? Yeah, that's like such a tricky question because, I mean, since 2006, I have been, been in a country longer than three years. Uh, and, it, and it's just, it, it's not like a flex, like, yeah, look at me. Uh, I don't know, like I have my bed and my pillow and like, you know what I mean? My mattress, I've had the same, like we invested in this really nice mattress. So home feels home here. It's like where my direct family is. But of course, I have my parents in Lebanon and there's my history. There's a lot of history there too. So that ties me to there. You know, there's that quote, um, I remember I would save it because I always liked it and I wanted to say it and I don't know where it's from and I'm sure, hold on. Yeah. Uh, so, so it goes, it goes like this. So here you are too foreign for home, too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Do you, have you ever heard that before? Oh, who said that? Uh, so the, her name is there <laughs> and there's no way I can pronounce it. <laughs> So we're going to have to do that at another time recording it. Or you do one of your brackets thing, because I heard in the first one you do your brackets. Let's open a little bracket then. The author of this quote is Ichoma Umebinuo, a Nigerian poet considered as one of Africa's best modern poets. Among other things, she wrote about her struggles of navigating between the U.S. and Nigeria. And the quote Marwan is talking about is from her poem Diaspora Blues. Here it is again. So here you are, too foreign for home. Too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. I, I absolutely adore it. And I think that the longer I've stayed out of Lebanon, the more whenever I went back, things weren't the same. Even though I feel even a stronger bond with the Arab world, Palestine and Lebanon. And now with everything that's happening, it's super compounded. But even when things were relatively good, I'd go back and it's just was such a hard disconnect, you know? I feel home in my parents' home, but the country grows in a different direction and you grow in a different one. And it's like a relationship almost doesn't, uh, it's not what it used to be. You said that you met your wife in Lebanon, so she's Lebanese. And uh, do you have the do you have the same attachment to the country? And I know that you don't have the same religion. Can you tell me a little bit about that? How did it go, and how did your families uh, react to that? My wife is actually uh, just as mixed up as I am. She's uh, like half Lebanese, quarter Swiss, quarter American. She was born in the States and raised there. And she only came to Lebanon much later in her life. And her attachment through Lebanon is in a way stronger than mine, even though she didn't spend... I mean, I think in total, she only lived there four years. And she comes from a very Christian family, really amazing people. And I'm uh, my parents are Muslim. 
I'm agnostic, and I've always kind of taken a step back from organized religion personally. I have to say, her family is just absolutely amazing. And I'm not just saying that because she's going to hear this, but... Uh, <laughs> But because they're 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 not just you know Christian on paper they're like they do a lot so they're uh, her family is full of uh, pastors and and churches they built and uh, and they go on missions and they really help people so and it's very much a part of who she is as well so I knew that very well getting into the relationship that this this woman has you know, this strong opinion on that, uh, on the subject matter. I respect absolutely everything she does. And it, we always have these discussions. It's always great where she asks me to think less and feel more. So we have this understanding and then that didn't really pose a challenge for our kids because it was very natural for me to say that, yeah, obviously we raised the kids as you would want to as Christian. And the only condition I said was that when they're of age, if they choose to turn their backs and do X, Y, and Z, we have to accept that. You know, that's my only clause to the whole arrangement, um, which I'm happy with. I think, it, I think it plays a really big part. You know, I'm sure some people might disagree, not in setting the necessarily the moral compass, because I think that's something that everyone has, but like as a link also to the culture, to the tradition, you know, there's so many like great things that tie you to the country through it as well, you know, so like Christmas and Easter and all these huge events that we have in Lebanon that go around it as well. And do you talk about the fact that you are agnostic? Do your kids ask that question? Uh, so, I mean, I, you know, that's the thing. There's not really like a symbol that defines you as agnostic. So I don't really like, you know, I don't interfere. I guess the word is play along. Yeah, because I was going to say you don't interfere, but do you participate? I, I absolutely love to participate. I, I, you know, this is another thing. Like, I don't understand why my parents didn't celebrate Christmas. I understand that they were Muslim, but it's just so, so awesome. It's like <laughs> the best. So like, I got, you know, I'm, I'm like a late bloomer to Christmas because, you know, I only really discovered it through my wife and her family and now through my kids and stuff. Okay. So of course, you know, not to belittle what it means, but then also it's such a great gathering and there's so much there and there's so much love and it's oh it's great i love christmas uh so you talked about the discussion you had about religion what about languages which languages do you speak at home and did you have the discussion uh, beforehand right so i had the chance to listen to your first podcast and, and i have to say hats off to those ladies for making such a huge effort to talk to their kids in arabic i am ashamed to say i make absolutely no effort I mean, I do, but compared to them, I make no effort. And um, I think it comes with the fact that Arabic for me, myself, is quite difficult. I have an easier time speaking French than I do Arabic. So Arabic is like the third language. I use it with my wife whenever we want to speak to each other and so that the kids don't understand. Uh, but we <laughs> yeah. so, so actually you should not teach it to your right kids. it's exactly it. but my daughter is going to Arabic school we, we send her to a, a well she has a class once a week we want that to be there that's why we have her in the class but we know we can't teach it but we should make more of an effort we know so don't shame us no I can really I can also <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's because we know it's bad and everyone like when we meet people they tell us like oh do you kids speak Arabic and we said oh not so much We're like why and everyone gets so like the, and they're right they're they're absolutely right but yeah, you know but um, you'll see one of the episodes is with a linguist and uh, she literally says 
choose a language you're, that is that feels natural to you and the language in which you can express your feelings because you're creating a special bond with your kid. If you're uncomfortable in the language and you have to look up words, then it's really not worth it. No. So you're okay. good. <laughs> you're off the hook. <laughs> awesome. I'm feeling great now. Yeah. But I think we make we make an effort in other places. So we make an effort with food. We make an effort with them understanding as well where they're from um, and them being aware about it. So you said that you do educate and talk a lot to your kids about the different cultures they come from. What do you do concretely to really uh, expose them to the different cultures for them to understand all of that mosaic that they have? So for one thing, like we take them down to protests. Um, yeah, so we've, we've taken them already. My son, even when he was three or even two, we were taking him down and, you know, it's just always a nice day out anyway. And you start explaining why you're there and what the story is. And I think there's a lot of the activism that brings them closer to that culture for them understanding as well currently what's happening. And then for Lebanon as well, we, we make an effort to be, we haven't been down as much as we'd like to after COVID and everything, but we tend to make an effort to go down there, spend time with our families. We spend time there when we can. And uh, there's the activist aspect, which helps them understand as well the political context of where they're from. Okay, let's talk a bit more about that. So you talk about protests, you talk about activism, you're talking about the Palestinian cause. What do you tell your kids about it? How do they receive it? How do you share such a um, delicate subject? And do you think that it can be passed down? Do you really hope that your kids get this, this activism side of you? Uh, well, I hope so. We're living in Geneva at the moment and the drive to school passes by the UN every day. And they always have a different demonstration every day. And so it's become a topic of conversation. Like, who's that, daddy? I'll be like, oh, that's, you know, the Tibetan flag. And they're protesting for so-and-so or something about Turkish human rights. So I, I'm happy that she already is starting to be curious about, you know, the world beyond just the house, I guess. I think she's on the direction of being an activist, because the way I say the story is never like with anger or hate. It's I always try and explain it from a human perspective. So I don't want to politicize it. I just say, like, imagine if you were forced out of our house and you had to leave behind all your toys. How would you feel? Kind of just contextualize it and say there's people like that. So she understands that also. That's also another element is that she understands that uh, what we're living is also something like we're quite blessed, you know, even living in a safe country, you know, that the people back home, it's not always guaranteed. She knows when, you know, when the explosion happened in Lebanon on August 4th. On August 4th, Beirut was shaken by one of the world's biggest non-nuclear explosions. It destroyed much of the city's port and devastated big parts of the capital. The blast was caused by a fire in a warehouse in which Lebanese authorities were stocking a huge amount of ammonium nitrate for six years, a highly flammable chemical. You know, we explained to her like what that did to a city. I think that by involving her, explaining to her in that way, we're kind of creating this uh, awareness to, you know, the struggle of, of Lebanon and the Lebanese and the Palestinians and uh, what that means in the wider scope, because she's going to have to navigate it too as she gets older. You know, I don't want to just tell her she's Lebanese-Palestinian and not equip her with the full 
story because she's going to have to defend that identity because it's not always, you know, um, a happy smile on the receiving end of whatever interaction you're having out there in the world, you know? How does your dad feel about you feeling and being and saying that you're Palestinian? Oh, great question. Uh, how, okay, so first of all, I have no idea. So I think I think um, I think he's happy now. I think uh, he's happy to see how, how I've come along. But he was definitely scared at first, and I didn't really understand why he was scared. And I think the more context I put behind what I again I'm assuming his life was like, he just didn't want me to go through the same thing that he might have gone through. You know, he put such huge effort to immigrate to Canada and to get us the citizenship and to build a life for us outside because that's what he always dreamt of doing. And he did, and he was successful, and I love him. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I think there's an element of, uh, of that he was a bit scared, but then I guess he realized how I've embraced it. And, you know, we've had these discussions and what have you. And I think he's in a good place now about it. I think he's happy. I, don't, I, I think that scared up moment was kind of like, whoa, they didn't know where it came from. But yeah, no, I think it's changed now. Definitely. What do you wish that your kids will answer when they're asked, where are you from? Um... I don't know. I don't know if I can answer that for them, to be honest. I don't know what would make me happy. I think what would make me happy is if they answered in the way they felt was right. You know what I mean? Because again, I, I think back to my experience. And at one point when I was, you know, a kid and living in Canada, I thought I was Canadian, which is so weird. I mean, I have a Canadian citizenship, but I don't know how to explain it. It's, it's very different to just say that first, you know? So I feel like whatever they answer, as long as they answer and it being true to who they feel they are, if that makes sense. So you're equipping them to have all the elements they need to then pick or at least decide which ones they feel they belong to more. Absolutely. Yeah. And that would make me happy if they can do that for themselves. I don't really have like an agenda of, you know, they must be activists or they must be this. I just, I want them to be happy with their own identity. And it's, uh, it's something that like I've dealt with as I've gotten older. I just feel like if I had that stronger identity, I don't know what it would change to be honest, but yeah, I want to make sure my kids have that. So to them, it's just natural to have this many nationalities, right? Do they ask questions? Do they ever try to understand a little bit better all of the countries they come from? Yeah, so my daughter is going through a phase where she writes books and it's hilarious because she comes, she comes with a book and the funny thing is on the back side of the book, she writes a barcode and then she draws a picture of her other books like, you know, by the same author. No. So, <laughs> So it's genius. It's hilarious. She's awesome. She's a, she's a character. She makes me so proud. And, and she wrote a quote unquote book about where I'm from. And she did, she asked me, she's like, so she's like, dad, I'm writing this book. Where am I from? And we did the whole family tree uh, exercise. And we like went all the way up to our, her great grandparents and you know trickled down to her and she understood she's like okay now she's kind of piecing it together 
And then she's, and then she even made a joke. Actually, I think she was like, she's like, I'll give people this book when they ask me where I'm from or something. Um, yeah, I don't know if we're confusing her. Yeah, now, now that I think about it, we probably we're definitely confusing her to a certain extent. Um, if she's having to commit it to writing to remember, but um, but she's curious about it. I think that's what we're happy about, you know. Do you have one last advice to parents who are wondering how to pass down several cultures? You know, the no, uh, I don't. You know, the best piece of advice I always tell parents is don't listen to advice, just do what feels natural to you. But that's advice. It, I, no, because I say you can even ignore my advice, right? But then they'd be taking my advice. So mic drop. <laughs> um, but, but no, really, it's, um, I think from, uh, from our experience of having our daughter first, everyone's just throwing all this advice at you. And, you know, never, nothing ever feels right unless you do what feels right for you. Reaching the end of the episode, um, I want to ask you, what is the smell of home to you? Zatar. So zatar literally means thyme, the herb. But here, Marwan is talking about the blend of dried herbs that the Lebanese eat on a regular basis. This blend includes thyme, samma, oregano, sesame seeds, and a touch of salt. It can be eaten in many forms, including blended with olive oil and spread on a bread, or even just sprinkled on a salad. I'm obsessed with zatar. Uh, so yeah, I just love a nice fresh bowl of zaatar. Do your kids uh, eat zaatar as well? My son does. My daughter likes it so-so, but my son loves it. We put it on eggs. He has a manushe. He, yeah, he's converted to the cause. A different kind of cause. <laughs> yeah, the zaatar one. Thank you so much, Mahwan. Hey, no problem. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Big Blend. If you like what we do, talk about us to your multicultural friends. You can also give us five stars on your podcast app. And if you want to get a glimpse into the newest episodes every month, follow us on Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter on the website, thebigblend.co. Cheers and see you soon.